This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about this episode include... Using your agency. Palimpsest recovery. Logistics with the Pelgrains. And saving Vinland. Join us in composing a wily kenning or two in praise of sponsor Sand and Steam Productions and their game, War of Metal and Bone, whose longships bear down on Kickstarter, even as we speak. Built with Fate Core, War of Metal and Bone lets you tell the stories of brave warriors, Jarls, bone-bonded giants, uh, not to be confused with, although possibly not indistinct from bone-headed giants, and their defense of their holdfasts. In addition to the awesomeness that is Fate Core, War of Metal and Bone adds some unique features. Bone bonded or seer, thrall or jarl, War of Metal and Bone lets everyone play side by side using the same excellent fate mechanics. Create your own holdfast and add to the world. Every campaign begins with the creation of your own unique holdfast. Every session will see you adding to the map you've made, uh, presumably making it progressively more Viking-y. This is your world. See how it changes. Form bonds with your party members, celebrate your warrior clan, and honor your history with your own sacred item. The war with the dwarves and their constructs rages across Midgard. What role will you play? The crinkling of potato chip bags, the crunching of potato chips, and eventually the rattling of dice tell us we have entered once more the sacred and potato chip scented confines of the gaming <laughs> hut. I see the potato chip syndicate has gotten to you, Ken, and <laughs> cast the Cheetos out of the gaming hut. It was Doritos, but um, uh, I figured I'd, I'd, I'd change it up. Anyway, where were we? Ah, yes, the gaming hut. Within the gaming hut, Robin, you uh, have perhaps some wise words for those who choose to act within the gaming hut and those who merely sit and eat chips of any kind. Right. So I thought today we would talk about agency, uh, what that means uh, from your point of view as a player. We give a lot of GM advice on the show. I thought we would mix up a bit and give some player advice. So uh, Ken, perhaps uh, as a uh, wizard of semantics, you could start by defining what agency typically means in storytelling. What agency typically means, and obviously you're going to get arguments around the fringes, but basically it is the question of, does the individual character actually control what they're doing, or are they being sort of buffeted around by fate, by the GM, by some sort of ineluctable and usually arbitrary outside uh, force or entity? So a character without agency is not necessarily terrible drama, um, and much of the question in something like you know Oedipus is... To what extent does Oedipus have agency and deliberately do these terrible things? Or to what extent is he actually just being monkeyed with by the gods and a pure victim? And so uh, I guess the question is, you know, to what extent is Oedipus tragedy and to what extent is it maybe horror is still a valid question. The thing is, however, that playing a character who is uh, simply led about by the nose by the gods to kill fathers and marry mothers and rule Corinth is not as much fun as playing a character who decides to kill that ugly old man and marry that um, uh, attractive woman and rule Corinth and only later find out, oh my lord, look what happened to me. So agency is the ability to drive your own, your, your own story forward as opposed to simply to react to other things. And in the role-playing context, you as a player want to have, you might think of agency as 
freedom of choice in play as opposed to freedom of choice before play when you're figuring out which crunchy bits you're going to attach to your character sheet, but things that actually happen in play that allow you to take action. But one of the paradoxes about agency is that in a role-playing context where it is your job as the players to drive the plot, but the GM also prepares uh, typically elements of the plot. Uh, this may be very light preparation in case of a the sandbox style that you prefer, Ken, but you've still got stuff in mind. And when players don't exercise their agency, what do you do? Yeah, when the players don't exercise their agency, then I, as a GM in the sandbox uh, style, begin having the non-player characters exercising their agency and reacting to the presence of the players, but reacting in such a way that moves their agendas forward and tries to enmesh the players in those agendas to, you know, basically just like anyone would act if, in the course of their normal plans, uh, four to seven well-armed, dangerous strangers suddenly showed up. You'd either try to uh, kill them, neutralize them, or recruit them, and that's usually what my NPCs try to do. And so that sort of establishes that agency is a use-it-or-lose-it phenomenon, that if you are interested in having freedom of choice, it is incumbent on you to make interesting choices that drive the story forward in a way that the GM and other players are able to accommodate in some way, because there are both, I would think, useful propulsive ways to exercise your agency and ways to exercise that agency that draw you into a dead end, for example. Uh, so your classic situation where you get bored and start a fight in the tavern forces the GM to react and makes things happen. But if you stop and think about it, say, let's say in this scenario, you are the bored player who's uh, decided to create a punch up. If you were to stop Ken for a moment and think about different story directions this could go to, are you going to find interesting story directions are likely going to be bounced at you by the GM? Yeah, that, and I guess the question there is, you know, if things have gotten to the point where you're just starting bar fights to wake the GM up or to wake yourself up, the, 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 the situation may have progressed to a point that you either feel you don't have any genuine agency because you are just in the tavern waiting for the 95th old guy to show up with the 95th mysterious scroll that has the map to the 95th dungeon on it, or you have had enough bad experiences with uh, trying to do things usefully in the game that you know that nothing's going to happen anyway. I, I think that that kind of starting a fight in the bar to pr provoke a reaction is either something that happens when we're all 11 and trying to figure out how the combat rules work and wanting to start fights in real bars but not being um, uh, able to get into them. And then eventually, I think, as you, as you start playing long enough, it, it stops being a thing. But one of the things that does start happening, I think, as you become a more experienced role player or a longer term role player is you start to look at your character's story as the central arc of the story. And that isn't necessarily the case, even in a good uh, campaign with a good responsive GM. So if you're playing, um, let, let's say you're playing in Dreamhounds of Paris and your response is, you know what, I'm going to um, uh, move to New York and I, I don't want to do any of this foolishness in Paris. It seems like it's full of ghouls and horrible things. I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to start uh, hanging out with, um, I forget the name of the guy, but the Black Sun publisher guy. And, and I'm going to drag the game over to, to visit, uh, all the American, uh, decadence in the 1920s. And the GM obviously 
doesn't have a response to that. It's not an illegitimate response. It may make the game more interesting, but it's outside the parameters that everyone has agreed on before they started. It's the same thing in character creation when there's always the one guy, you're, you're standing up a Western, and he says, okay, I want to be a ninja. And it's like, there aren't any ninjas, it's a Western. He says, well, there could be one Japanese guy in the West. I guess so. Well, I'm him, and he's a ninja. Then that's still, you know, I, I think that's privileging your own story, which may be an interesting story. I mean, obviously, the story of the one ninja in the West is probably going to be a pretty good story, but it's at the expense of the group story, and I think that's a bigger problem as you go you know, forward as a, um, as a, as a more experienced role player than the simple, I'm going to start a fight because I'm bored or I'm going to stab the king in his throne room type stuff, which is just, you know, uh, I, I think almost literally adolescent play in the sense that it's purely rebellion against structure. And while that's fun, it's also, you know, visibly pointless, whereas something where you're following your own story may not be as visibly pointless to the player. And, it is, you know, certainly defensible in the sense of, hey, you know, I use it or lose it. I've got to play my own character my own way. Right. You can also withdraw agency from the group as well as withdrawing it uh, in sort of a protest against the GM. So, for example, if the whole rest of the group has decided on a course of action that you feel is out of character for your character or you as a player object to as uh, immoral or insufficiently immoral, depending on the circumstances... <laughs> um, the question that you're then faced with is how can I create a counter narrative that works with the other narrative in some sort of interesting way? So if you say to yourself, well, I'm not going to go on this run. I'm just going to go to the library and work on my research project. You're not giving a ball to either the players or to the GM to handle. You're just sort of absenting yourself from the situation. And Assuming that you actually do want to participate in the game that night, because I think a lot of people are capable of making that decision, and then at the end of the evening being upset that no one gave them an opportunity to do something, the question then becomes how do you find a an interesting, active way of exercising your agency that doesn't require you either to... Uh, be led by the nose by a consensus that you don't want to buy into or led uh, by whatever preparation that GM has done. So we've looked at a bunch of sort of negative examples of problems that you want to avoid. And so let's say you want to break out of that pattern that you've had experiences before where you have either sort of withdrawn your participation from a storyline in the game or you've found yourself stymied. How do you start to look at the problem that you're facing in a way that will lead you to a fun, interesting solution that throws a ball to the other players or throws a ball to the GM? Well, I think in, in your case, like, like you're saying, the, there's the players have collectively agreed, we're going to go do this thing, and you think it's a terrible idea, or you think it's something your character just would never do, or, you know, whatever. You, I think you have two possibilities. You go along, you know, it, as in-character protesting and saying, this is a terrible idea, we're all going to be caught, it's going to be a, a miserable failure, and the first sign of anything going wrong, your character lights out on their own. And that, at the very least, provides, you know, uh, a, a challenge for the GM in the sense of they have to do a second half of the run, but you're still in present in the main story arc, right? And Or you can, you know, stick along stick around and just do role-playing of the guy who knows this is a bad idea, which is a standard sort of character you see in a lot of uh, men-on-a-mission type uh, 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 movies and, and stories. 
and, and you know, if, you, if you're happy just role-playing a guy who doesn't want to be here today all the way through, I think that would get a little one-notey for me, but I'm, I'm sure that there are players out there who, who think that that would be a fun, dramatic challenge. But I, I think the idea of looking for the first reasonable point at which your character could go off and still contribute to the mission. The mission is, you know, to get inside the palace or whatever, and you're like, well, this is a terrible idea. The palace is very, very well guarded. You get past the first batch of guards because that's what always happens. No one is ever killed in the lobby in role-playing games. And one hopes not. One hopes not. Well, <laughs> if, if so, then you were right. It was a terrible idea. Roll up new characters. No ninjas. Um, and so, or maybe all ninjas because you got to get past that lobby. But anyway, the... Um, the, there, there is still going to be something you're contributing in sense of the run at the palace because you're a, a distraction and a diversion. And even if your character in their character's mind is, I'm just trying to get out, you're still creating a diversion and helping with the main mission. Your other possibility is to say, you guys go do that palace run. Good luck to you. And if you're saying, I'm going to go to the library and do my research, make sure it's the haunted library. Make sure it's something the GM has already dropped activate something that the GM has fed you as opposed to just picking something that you know is safe, innocuous, and gives you bragging rights. Pick another mission. Pick a submission or a side mission or a side quest. One of the things, one of the loose ends that's on your character sheet. You know, I, I don't think I liked the look of that um, uh, uh, Nicaraguan arms dealer. I'm going to go uh, screw him up and take all of his guns away so that when you come back, we'll have some heavy artillery for our proper mission, which I get to pick. And then you're on a side quest they're in the thing, and the GM can do cross-cutting, which maintains tension in terms of storytelling. And who knows? Maybe you do uh, take out the, the arms dealers and, and get all their guns, and you've got a little reward for your solo play. The GM has a relatively unchallenging, or unchallenging in terms of plot, but possibly challenging in terms of, you know, weight of ammunition being thrown downrange. Uh, a little sub-adventure to do you. You've gotten some play in, and they've gotten the actual mission uh, undergone, if not accomplished. A useful exercise when you're faced with a situation where you can't see agency that you approve of for your character is to stop back and say, okay, if this was a TV show or a novel or whatever, what, how would that play out? Because you're not actually going to have chapter after chapter of the character sulking in his hotel room or researching <laughs> some unrelated project at the library. You're either going to have the character suddenly pop up and save everybody's butts, even though they disapproved of the mission and didn't want to go on it, right? The... Uh, sort of variant Han Solo to the rescue mm -hmm. thing, in which case you can sort of slip a note to the GM and say, uh, can we find a moment for me to pop back into the narrative as the surprise cavalry? Um, or uh, alternately, if you were, uh, if your objection to the mission was not prudential, but moral, if you object to the purpose of the mission, you could then say, slip a note and say, hey, can you find a moment for me to pop back in having gone off and done some other thing that uh, skews the objective in my favor. Um, the other part of that is that if the GM is half awake and you go to the library, the GM will have you find something in the library that hooks you back into the main story, or as you suggested earlier, just has another parallel story in a, a less structured uh, presentation. So, one way to look at it is to say to yourself, what would happen if my character objected in a piece of fiction? Another thing is to sort of try and step into the GM's point of view and say, well, what would the GM want to happen that still satisfies all of my necessary character points, uh, which I guess is a, a sort of a variant on A. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the really great things that you can do as a player always, and and I, as a GM, I know that I always appreciate it, is to look for parts of the GM's world or parts of the GM's story that they haven't gotten around to telling yet. And if you race ahead and start interacting with that in such a way that you get to define it somewhat, right? If you, if, if you're in a, a sort of a game where there's collaborative world building, that's one thing. But just by simply being there, you can sort of force the question th- uh, that the GM had not yet put as much thought into. And the GM, uh, because we're all world builders at heart, will say, will say, great, I get to flesh out this little part of the universe. And you as the player character get to sort of set the initial conditions on the ground so that in theory, of course, it's something your character would do because your character is going and doing it right now instead of the other thing. And I think that if you pay attention to what the GM is is uh, is dishing out in terms of the setting, and it might just be a, a story that, you know, the other thing that they didn't do instead of the palace run that you want to go do instead, or it might be a, another third thing. You're like, whatever happened to that order of seers that got mentioned way early, surely they will know that this is a terrible idea. I'll go ask them. And the GM will say, oh, great, I can real finally do some role-playing with the order of seers. And when that guy shows up, you know, if you say, I, I put the, the two silver coins down on the table, the GM's like, oh, yeah, that's neat. And suddenly you've established that that's how you interact with the order of seers instead of having to go through, you know, an ordeal and go on there on another stupid side quest, which may have been what the GM was going to do to you by the time you, he actually got around to introducing the Order of Seers. And one thing, if you're really concerned about agency as a player, is to be prepared to take the initiative. I think everyone has had the experience where the GM sort of has an open series of choices that the players can pursue, and usually there's a moment where everybody sort of looks to each other to be, well, I don't know, Marty, what do you want to do? And so uh, you can be Marty and prepare in advance a couple of ideas ahead for each session, which I think sort of follows up in an idea that we floated earlier. So if you are the sort of player who's concerned about this, jot down on your character sheet different plot threads as they come up that you want to investigate later so that... uh, if you're the first person to suggest an answer to what we want to do, it's like, well, let's go over and talk to Desnos about his dream cave. If you have that in mind already to go, uh, most of the other players are going to go along with you and the GM is going to be happy to have something to ping off of because the uh, GMs in general, unless they are, uh, can really only play in a tightly scripted way from something that they've prepared in detail or, or have, or running from a published game, which is not most GMs. Most GMs are going to be very happy that you jump in right away with, uh, let's go to the Dream Cave. And if you want to be even more proactive about it, email everybody ahead of time and say, hey, this should be the session where we go to the Dream Cave. Yeah, I think that that's, that's one aspect, certainly. Um, the, the notion of um, seeing where your division points are going to come and picking one early so that you have that sort of um, uh, rhetorical jump on the rest of the party. I think another possibility is... To look at things, uh, if, if you're trying to decide, I want to increase my character's agency, I want my character to be the one who's driving the story uh, in some sense, work with the GM uh, possibly ahead of time to say, I want some element of my backstory. If I'm going into the palace, if I'm going to be part of this stupid palace thing, GM, make sure that you know we solve the question of, is my nephew dead in the palace, right? Make GM, make sure that some element of my 
of my ongoing character story, which is technically, obviously, a, a, usually a subplot or a B story in the campaign as a whole, but to that character is important. You know, throw me a bone, give my character a reason to be present on this mission. Because, again, if you look at ensemble television, a lot of times there is no reason that they've brought that character. It's just that they're a regular and they have to be in the scene. And sometimes that is, you know, obvious and stands out, and sometimes they've provided some ridiculous reason that, no, we have to have the elderly insane scientist along because he's the only person who can read the diary that's in the, you know, safe or something like that. And so if the GM knows ahead of time that you're going to have problems with the palace, or if the GM has watched this fight go down while you're deciding whether to go to the palace, this might be the time for you to say to, say to the either to the GM indirectly or to the GM directly, it, yeah, well, maybe if I knew that my nephew was in the palace, that would be a thing. And then the GM can say, oh, interestingly enough, it's about this time that uh, you run across public notice that your nephew is going to be executed in the palace tomorrow or something like that. Right. And that's a great example of not saying, well, I'm not motivated to follow this thread. That's your throwing them a ball and saying, hey, I have a possible motivation. What if my nephew was in there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, trying to either, I, another, it's not really agency, but I, I always look at, uh, you know, sort of niche as, as sort of part of the character in a lot of ways, so that when, if you don't want to go into the palace because it looks like it's going to be a straight up slugfest and you're the ninja, maybe the solution is just, I'll go into the palace, like you say, after you guys have gone in and blown up all the alarms, and then I'm going to ninja in and hand solo you. If that is your plan ahead of time, you don't even have to necessarily uh, write the GM a note. You can just say ahead of time, is it okay if my character uh, ninjas in, and that way I can do my ninja thing instead of having to be in a series of room-to-room fights? Well, uh, not only have you said this isn't really about agency, but you've mentioned uh, ninja hand solo, both reasons to move on to our next segment. Our next sponsor this week is Atlas Games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game, Once Upon a Time. As you might have been able to guess from that pressy, in Once Upon a Time, players tell a story together using cards. Each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them. Like a dragon, a stepmother, a journey, a palace. Each player also has one ending card. Like, and so his wound was healed, but his heart remained forever broken. To play Once Upon a Time, one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards. For example, once upon a time, a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story. When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off. Weaving in their own element cards. The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending card so the story makes sense. Great for role players. Great for kids who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills. Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium. Games Magazine called it the best family card game of the year. Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame. The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way. But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left. For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still great second edition at a liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? 
Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check. It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check. There's a limited-time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check. And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. Indeed, they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So the sound of Baroque music and the leather upholstered chair suggest that we are in the clubby confines of the History Hut. And this week I thought we would take a look at a cool news story and riff various gaming and fiction ideas therefrom. And that is the idea of multispectral palimpsest recovery. And try saying that three times fast, but I'm sure not gonna. And this is a result of something called the Palamedis Project, uh, which is based out of the universities of Göttingen and Bologna. And what they're doing is they're taking old medieval manuscripts, often of Bibles, and finding the previous manuscripts that were written on the pages before the monks took these rare pieces of paper, then rare pieces of paper, and thoroughly bleached them in order to write Bibles over them. And uh, by using new technology, they're able to find the traces of what was written on these pages before they were bleached. And they found uh, not only excerpts of plays by Euripides, but uh, material that I think is not actually by Aristotle, but is somebody's lecture notes on having her third, uh, a secondhand version of Aristotle, which gives us uh, more of Aristotle. It's not the uh, much desired Aristotle a book of comedy that everyone who takes a drama 101 or has read The Name of the Rose uh, hopes will one day surface, but it's still uh, suggestive and uh, cool nonetheless. Uh, Ken, what were your thoughts when you heard this story? Well, first of all, um, uh, since apparently my great dream of finding a unexplored uh, Hellenistic library in Afghanistan has almost certainly been blown up over the last 40 years, um, I, this is my last hope for finding things like the the uh, you know missing plays of Aristophanes or Euripides, finding stuff like the lost uh, book of comedy by Aristotle is something like this, where eventually you can go to not just these two manuscripts, because they're only right now looking at just two manuscripts, and obviously there are hundreds of thousands of medieval manuscripts that one could possibly look at. I don't know how many of them are palimpseste and how many of them are going to be palimpsests of something as great as Euripides. And, for example, the, the, the write-up doesn't discuss whether the Palamedes Project looked at a hundred different manuscripts at the Library of the Holy Sepulchre before eventually discovering that only two of them were written on something important, or whether this was literally the first two they picked and there's a whole, you know, virgin field out there. But I do think that this is, you know, this may be our only chance, barring time travel, of getting some of these lost works back. And the notion that you can do it, of course, is just hugely exciting as a scholar. Also, kudos to them for naming it the Palamides Project. Palamides, of course, also invented games. He invented dice and board games while besieging Troy because he was easily bored. And so he was seeking agency. Right. He, possibly he was. Um, he was. He was the guy who, when Odysseus said, no, attacking Troy is stupid, made him come along on the run, in fact. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> so, he, so he's the first guy in that session to say, hey, let's go track Troy. Well, actually, it was Agamemnon that said that, and Palamedes was like, well, I guess my character's got loyal to Agamemnon, so oh, there you go. let's do it. Anyhow, but yes, the uh, so the Palamedes Project, you know, as a historian, it's interesting, and certainly as a, a collector of literary curiosa, it's fascinating. I like the notion that, sort of the theological notion even, that underneath the prophetic books of uh, of Daniel, there's a piece of Euripides. And of course, the, the first instinct for any of us synchronists is to say, oh, what what's Euripides talking about? Could it possibly be something that you could gloss as part of the Daniel apocalypse? Is there something going on that brings these two pieces together? Are there some meta connection that you can start drawing that and that's just the the, the first fun thing that, that occurs but of course there's eight million of them not to mention you know the standard oh look it's uh, something called the necronomicon how right. strange um so uh i guess let's uh, run through the obvious uh ideas first before we get to uh the more off the wall thing so another pretty obvious thing is you could discover a map i think there are actually some illustrations uh, coming up along with text. So uh, one of those illustrations could be your classic map with an X on it, or it could be the layout of a temple or other site that you can then go and uh, try and uh, track down and find. It could be a narrative of something that sets you up for uh, the, the present day, something where it says um, that such and such a person was uh, was carried off to uh, the land of the Griffins or something, and that gives you either a clue to where the location of the land of the Griffins is, your map notion, or a clue to the fate of that character that you have now got to trace through the uh, myriad uh, centuries that have been lost. Uh, in a fantasy setting, you could have a magical equivalent of multi-spectrum imaging so that you could have a document that uh, where the in informational MacGuffin, the uh, espionage information, the data on the location of the uh, king's courtiers or the battle plans of the enemy or the message that you're trying to smuggle uh, through goblin territory to your allies uh, is written on the pages to begin with, and then the pages are bleached, and then they're written over with some sort of innocuous document, whether it's the uh, fantasy equivalent of a Bible or possibly you know, just a laundry list or whatever, and that uh, as the person who discovers that document, right, you've gone and chased the guys and gone to a huge effort to get this document, and, uh, oh, it's just a laundry list, and then uh, the GM gives you some uh, hint that allows you to discover, or you have the ability that allows you to see that the real information is hidden underneath, uh, so that you could make a palimpsest a MacGuffin, uh, in, and the virtue of that is that you can then use the word palimpsest and MacGuffin in the same sentence. Which, all by itself, I mean, and if you name a character palimpsest MacGuffin, uh, <laughs> don't tell the GM it was our idea. Yeah, I think that's a Kurt Vonnegut character. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> or a Richard Browdigan. Anyway, yeah, the, another possibility is that the act of uh, bleaching the knowledge out and writing other knowledge over it actually has a magical result. So if uh, th there's this commentary on Aristotle, uh, and maybe the thing in Aristotle they're commenting on is uh, the tyranny of Sicily, right? Because he writes, in the politics, he writes about every single thing. So once you've written about the tyranny of Sicily, there is actually some magical significance in the world to bleaching out those words and writing um, a piece of the, um, uh, of the book of Daniel onto it. And so there would be... Um, a notion that it's part of a multi-generational 
conspiracy to submerge the tyranny of Sicily and replace it with the book of Daniel, that the actually the act of covering it up is the magical act you're looking for, not necessarily the description or the book of Daniel itself. Right. And so you could then know perhaps ahead of time that there's this uh, palimpsest that the unknowing professors at this project are trying to unlock the information in, and just the act of uncovering that information will cause a reality shift, and your objective could be to prevent that reality shift from happening, to stop them from conducting the uh, multi-spectrum analysis that brings these words of terror back into the world, or it could be that your from the original timeline that was erased by a palimpsest and you're trying to restore the proper order and so that your mission then is to keep the documents out of the hands of the agents of the current order who are pursuing you in time for you to get them to the professors and get them to find the, the message underneath. So it could you could either be attempting to uh, restore or to uh, prevent the restoration of the previous order that has been locked away in those pages. Yeah, I, I think that the um, the the whole notion of these uh, books having other values besides the the surface value is just a great one to carry on. I mean, again, you can make it literally anything in a, a role playing game, whether it's fantasy, it's modern day, whatever it is. You're gonna find magic. Or you're gonna find documents and, and source texts, and the notion that you need to uh, sub submit those documents to multispectral imaging. In case there is more treasure underneath them, that's the sort of thing that you can do to something that you found, you know, 15 or 16 sessions ago, and the uh, GM can sort of drop one of these um, uh, these, these documentary analysts into your path as a non-player character, and when you take him back to your headquarters to keep him safe from the uh, vampires or whatever, he looks around at your at your trophy room and says, "Oh my goodness, is that one of the you know parchments from uh, Cyrene in Libya?" And you're like. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It's like, well, surely you've under you've used um, uh, gamma ray analysis on it, and you would, of course, have not because this is the first your characters ever heard of it, and that's a way to introduce more treasure and more mystery into the game that you don't even have to go chasing it. It can already be in your headquarters or already in your your character's um, uh, loot box that the GM then provides it with more knowledge, more significance, or, of course, more danger, because the guy might say, that's one of the most dangerous manuscripts in the world. That holds literally holds a demon in it. What are you doing keeping it out there next to all that other stuff? And then, you know, that can be sort of a, a, an ongoing bane that you have to exercise, or it can give you magical artillery you didn't know that you had. Right, you, you got to an idea I was uh, and, uh, in the chamber there before I did, which is that the text might not be text. It might be an entity. They might be the uh, ghostly spirits of uh, uh, bad guys, or on the other hand, heroes who were uh, locked away magically, and that the reason that it's Bible verses on top is to keep them trapped in there. Uh, and so again, uh, these could either be uh, things that you want to use in a ritual to uh, release whoever it is inside, or you're trying to prevent other people from uh, releasing what is uh, hidden on those pages. Yeah, I mean, what what better way to get the Necronomicon into a modern day Cthulhu campaign than it's uh you know it's a it's a copy of a Bible that has been kept in some monastery in Yorkshire for forever, and they get to it and um why are crazy bad guys uh, du jour you know Brazilian anarchists or whoever trying to break into this monastery and take this Bible? What's so important about it? It's just a Bible, and then as you you know examine it, 
you realize that th- this is the actual Necronomicon, and it was purposefully bleached off, purposefully had the Bible written down on it in some desperate attempt to, you know, contain the evil magic. Maybe writing the Bible on it doesn't do it, but certainly bleaching all the words off will slow down most of your uh, occult madmen. Though not the Maigo, who I guess can read these things without even using technology because they see into those other dimensions. Uh, that's another possibility. What if it's a character or monster ability to read these palimpseste without going through all the um, uh, all the scanning and, and high-tech stuff, that just by looking at them they can they can read it? That would be an interesting gift to suddenly realize that your character had, or an interesting power for an NPC or even a, a, a sort of a, a monster or alien race. Someone who is really tricky could write a, the fake Necronomicon over the bleached-out real Necronomicon. <laughs> That's right. This, I'm not sure why anyone would copy um, uh, Simon's nonsensical Necronomicon onto medieval parchment, but oh well, whatever. Yeah. Um, another possibility is that the text is a William Burroughs-esque word virus, that it's a textual contagious disease that is uh, released into the world so that you have uh, then a sort of supernatural version of outbreak or contagion where the uh, these words have been released and you're trying uh, not to destroy the words. It's too late to do that, but to somehow counter the effect that they're having as they spread from scholar to scholar. Yeah, the notion that uh, maybe the Black Death was actually like a medieval Pontypool, that uh, it's... Um... It's these words that uh, cause people to turn into zombies or uh, have some other horrific effect. Then the notion of a, uh, you know, maybe, you know, one of the things that it could be is to combine the notion it's a lost book. It's, you know, uh, not uh, Palamides, but it, although he did invent writing, I'll point out, even in all the letters except B and T. I don't know who invented the first ones. I think the fates did. That makes the invention of dice pale by comparison. Yeah, well, I mean, it, 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 Here's the thing. We all look at what's interesting to us, right? It's like, you know, <laughs> to to Americans, William Shatner is Captain Kirk. To Canadians, he's Canadian. It's just one of those things. Um, so the, uh, anyway, the the notion that, um, oh, what the hell was I going with this <laughs> before I got confused by Captain Kirk? <laughs> Captain Kirk has a way of doing that. He, he does. He has a power. Um, I, I, there's, there's a palimpsest, obviously, that buried deep in your brain that has been uh, erased for all time. I, I think I think those who know me know that there are many palimpsests in my brain, and many of them have been bleached and written over. Well, uh, perhaps this is, is the sign that uh, Ken's uh, brain has been overwritten by some malign alien force. Uh, so we could either take him to the hospital, or we could move on to another segment. Another segment of Ken and Robin talk to somebody else, and once more, unusually, mysteriously, both Ken and Robin are talking to somebody else, and even more unusually and mysteriously, talking to two someone else's, and that is uh, Palgrane Press Headquarters, specifically Simon Rogers, a publisher, and the ruthlessly efficient Kat Tobin, and your your job title is? Production Manager. Production Manager. Um, so I thought that we would chat a little bit about... Uh, not only production, but getting the thing that you've produced out to the people who have ordered it and the various 
weird logistical challenges or just uh, unknown logistical challenges that you may not be familiar with as uh, as a customer of games. Uh, so, Kat, what did you learn in the course, for example, of uh, making sure that all of the logistical portion of the Hillfolk Kickstarter happened? I think one of the biggest things we learned is that the longer it takes from um, when Kickstarter ends to when you ship the books, the more likely it is people will have moved house. And so the more address changes you'll have to go through. That was a kind of big thing that I think we learned from it. And Simon, there was uh, something of a rude shock about the pricing of shipping between the close of the Kickstarter and uh, the ultimate publication of the books. Yes, I think one thing you could potentially do is maybe hedge oil funds or something, because uh, the shipping prices go insane, and they, they, they seem to track uh, fuel prices, over which obviously we have no control. But I think the issue is, the closer to the completion of the Kickstarter the shipping is, the fewer the, of these problems arise. You have far more control over your costs, um, whether it's shipping or other items. Uh, your spreadsheet that tells you how much everything um, is worth will be more accurate. And it's best where you can to buy all the stuff you need as early as possible. Okay. And so uh, I guess other lessons going forward then, that means that you want to make sure when you're doing a Kickstarter that you're not adding a whole lot of creative content after the fact, as appealing as that is in terms of building in stretch goals because you're building in a huge amount of uncertainty in terms of what the actual shipping costs are going to be by the time your thing ships, or is that just still uh, a risk that you have to accept and the upside of that is way better than the potential downside of a su surprise rise in shipping costs? Um, I think what you need to do is this kind of plan for the best and worst in the sense that if you assume that your book is going to weigh two kilos and plan for your shipping accordingly, then if you're fantastically successful, you'd be fine. Obviously, the downside is that people will then be less likely to pledge. Uh, but the fewer physical components you have and the fewer locations from which they are sourced and the less human involvement in the process, the, the easier, easier it will be. For example, shipping book plates around uh, the world uh, is quite a big deal. It's quite time-consuming, um, and finding tokens in two different countries is complicated because it's very you can't ship them from one country to another because the customs would go mad. Over right, that. and these are the precious stones that we... Yeah. Uh, made one of the add-ons slash uh, additional items in the Hillfolk Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And so you had to double source that. Yeah. And double sourcing anything means that you're doubling the chances of something yeah. going wrong and delaying the project. Because even just on the creative level, the more people you involve in a project, mm -hmm. you are then uh, going to be as late as the very latest person to deliver something. Mm -hmm. I imagine the same is true with any sort of person delivering a physical component for a, a physical add-on. Also, if you imagine um, you've priced up your, your tokens or whatever the hell it, else it is, um, and then you go back to your supplier and they've either stopped supplying them or, or they've changed their terms, you have absolutely no control over that. And I think the lesson we've learned from that is definitely anything you can buy that you can get early, early on, because let's face it, you have the money to do so, you should just do it straight away. So... 
if we've had the time and been able to uh, organise it better, um, we would have immediately ordered in all the all the tokens and bags, you know, straight away, rather than thinking, oh, we've got a long time to do this. Uh, I, I I think that that's uh, something that we can be much better prepared for in the future. Now, one of the big issues for people who are in the continental United States is, for example, Fred Hicks, a master Kickstarterer, um, is recommending that American publishers just not ship to anyone outside the U.S. period, that if they want a physical component, they have to be uh, in the contiguous 48. Um, now, obviously, as someone headquartered in London, that is not nearly as an attractive uh, an offer or an, not an offer, but an, an idea for you, um, what other things come into play when you start talking about the difficulties of shipping across borders? Well, I think for us, because we have we have two distinct shipping points, um, because we can ship from the UK, people in based in the UK are, are less of an issue than maybe they might be for somebody like Fred, who's just shipping from the US. Um, but it, Equally, we have the, the situation regarding shipping costs where it was, for example, cheaper for us to ship, um, to source products in the US and print books in the US and ship them from the US to the UK and then back to Canada than it was to ship them from the US to Canada. So again, once you get out of the, um, once you get out of the continental US and the UK, just shipping internationally at all seems to be a massive issue. And I have to say, you know, since I am Canadian uh, and my location was listed on the Kickstarter as Toronto, Canada, there's nothing that drives Canadians uh, crazier, even than people saying a boot when they do their imitation of uh, Canadians' accents, is the fact that shipping across the border from Buffalo to southern Ontario, you know, just a couple of feet away, is suddenly an incredible expensive thing that shipping to Canada from the US is just as expensive as shipping from the US to Azerbaijan um, and uh, it's very difficult to convince people that shipping is as crazy as it is uh, and I think part of that I guess is the expectation that like everything else uh, in the internet age things are getting cheaper due to efficiency but things are getting more expensive there are no efficiencies of scale in shipping things. Um, Have you looked at uh, how Lonnie Cook is trying to sort of address that by presenting people with a, uh, a, a basically a shipping voucher that they buy at the time that they buy their product, and then if it goes up, they have the option of canceling or paying more to get the product actually shipped? That, um, I mean, there's no ideal solution because the ideal solution obviously is it doesn't cost a million billion dollars to ship. As long as that is the case and as long as prices keep raising randomly and arbitrarily, where is the good result? I mean, do you just eat it as part of consumer customer service? What's your, what's your take on it? I absolutely wouldn't charge anybody any more money. Um, if you've included shipping, mm -hmm. one option would be, uh, back this and we will charge you shipping at cost would be an option. Mm -hmm. But my view is, because Kickstarter is now such a big thing, people really are beginning to set up dropshipping fulfillment, which is what we would really like to do. There's a massive opening in the uh, in Canada. If a company will set up, accept a palletized shipment from the States, all labelled up with weights on it, ready to put in the Canadian postal system, 
they will make a fortune. Um, and if they can be the first people to do that, and they can do it efficiently. And that's the way to do it. If your Kickstarter is sufficiently large and you've got 100 packages, say, going to Australia, you ship them, you know, on a, on a ridiculously mm. slow boat. When they get there, you put them in the mail. It saves you a fortune. The problem is obviously the additional time it takes. Um, but there are now a number of agencies that will do that for you. Um, if you are willing to use Amazon, Amazon Fulfillment is an amazing way of doing it. It's one Kickstarter I'm aware of. Uh, drop shipped to Amazon.eu and they will fulfill your orders for you. You set up briefly as an Amazon supplier and they will, they will sell, they will ship them out very efficiently, but not a, you know, not an overinflated cost. The expensive thing is if we are sticking a book in the post to Australia, it will cost us 23 pounds. Yeah. Now the Australians, can't think it's an insane amount of money for them to pay for stuff, but it costs. We subsidise all shipping to distant nations. We really do. We, uh, uh, on you know, a lot of books we ship out to Australia and New Zealand, places like that, we make a loss. So Australians and New Zealands who hate uh, Pelgrane Press buy our book. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess another thing that we ran into with the Kickstarter is the difficulty of when to tell people when there's been a snag and a delay mm. in the system, because of course you, you know, if you want to sleep at night, you want everything in people's hands mm. as possible, mm. as you possibly can, but often when there is a slight hitch, you think that that slight hitch is going to resolve itself, mm. or you are waiting back for information mm. on when it's going to resolve itself. So there are, you know, a number of challenges in being perfectly transparent with people mm. at every moment of the stage when things are going slightly pear-shaped, because uh, a, you might not have a better estimate for them, and you don't want to keep hitting people with updates that actually are, well, we don't know what's mm -hmm. going on. So where, how do you uh, think in the future the best way to sort of hit the balances between keeping people informed and hitting them with too many updates that just remind them that they haven't got the thing they're waiting for? I think there's kind of two tracks, really. There's the people who want to know all the time what the status of everything is, including currently we have no new information. And as long as they can see that is dated today or whenever, they will know that they have the latest information. I know that if I'm waiting for a reply for something important and they say nothing, that's no good to me. But if, if say, one of my suppliers emails me and says, I'm sorry, I can't provide you with any new information, at least I know what's going on. The other track is people who don't care. They pledged. They'll work, the books will appear it'll be like magic. It's like there's stuff they've never even paid for just magically appears at their door. But we tend to be, I, I'm sure that we've messed up sometime during this Kickstarter, but we tend to be relatively proactive if we've done something wrong. So I'm mass emailing all of the the, the people saying, this is this is what's happened, uh, not just for Kickstarter, but if we ever make any other errors, because um, <clears throat> I think it's important to keep people in touch. And we don't generally get people emailing us saying you're giving us too much information. But we do occasionally get people emailing us saying, "Could you please tell me what's going on?" So, Ken, you uh, haven't done a lead on a Kickstarter yet. I'm sure you're figuring out some way to. Uh, actually kickstart your time machine or something else. So as someone who has watched other people go through the Kickstarter process, what uh, questions have come up in your mind as to how it's going to go when you're the smiling face on the uh, campaign? Or do you want to never be the smiling face on the campaign because you don't want to keep getting customer service questions? I, I wouldn't mind being the smiling face, but for the same reason I am not a publisher, I'm 
going to be the smiling face who is capable of smiling and saying, why don't you ask my lovely publisher, Simon, or my mm-hmm. lovely publisher, Hal? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what I will be smiling at. If Even if the Kickstarter is, is, is of something that I'm doing that's my project that I own, I'll partner up with Hal or, or someone like that to do the actual uh, irksome work part of it. I think what I've looked at, and when other people who've run Kickstarters have talked to me, I think the lesson is absolutely control anything that isn't the fundamental core product, right? If you're like, oh, I'm doing a Kickstarter for a terrific motorcycle racing game, I should have motorcycle jackets. No, you shouldn't have motorcycle jackets. They're horribly expensive to source. They take vast amounts of your time. A million things can go wrong. Poor uh, Will Heinmarch, when he was doing Always Never Now, he had these awesome uh, metal incised uh, 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 USB sticks with the game on them because it's a hip cyberpunky game, but the amount of Michigas it cost him just to find them and, and get them and order them, it, it's just not worth it. And, you know, people don't want keychains and ball caps and pens and fruit bats and whatever else. They want your game. And, well, in fairness, they do want the fruit bats. Well, yeah, you do want the fruit bats, but that's really a different, that's a different product. And uh, when uh, Fruit Bats and Freemasons does come out, <laughs> we will have a full Fruit Bat reward level. Anyway, the um, uh, and so all those tchotchkes strike me as really diverting time and energy. And because so much, everyone has told me running a Kickstarter is a full-time deal. You're doing that, nothing but that for a month. And, you know, I don't expect that if I am doing that, I'm going to want to spend my time and energy buying, you know, uh, badges or something. I'm going to want to be trying to either respond to people's enthusiasm about the project and try and channel it into getting more uh, kickstarty goodness going, or possibly writing stretch goals or whatever. I think that letting the stretch goal outrun your what what you actually can deliver is another problem because I think that's what leads to a lot of these uh, products being you know years late is because you wind up promising something that's going to be. 150,000 words, and you have written 35,000 words, which would have been a perfectly good release, but now you may not have another 80,000 words in the tank on this product, and now you are going to be sending them something that is bloated and late and uninspired, which strikes me as a really bad way to um, uh, to, to, to make more customers. Um, the, the bloated, late, and uninspired Kickstarter notoriously uh, collapsed after funding, which seemed odd to me. Uh, <laughs> the people wouldn't fund it in the first place. Right, yeah. And, and so those are sort of my, you know, keep an eye on your on your tchotchkes and your side items, and then or, and, or exclude them entirely, and then just make sure that you sort of keep an eye on how much you're promising to deliver and what your time frame is. Uh, but the Belgrain practice of kickstarting after the manuscript is done is, I think, a really sound uh, policy to follow. I, that may not be an option for everybody, but I think it certainly, you know, helps avoid headaches and helps avoid people coming up with crazy ideas that maybe aren't going to work. And I think that, you know, again, like with everything else in business, do the math so that you know that you actually won't lose money if you fund, which apparently is something that happens more often than not, uh, or more often than it should with people. So. Uh, these are sort of lessons I've picked up on the street, and again, they reinforce. And my, it's a shame kids today have to learn this on the street. That, well, hopefully now they can learn it from a podcast or a trusted clergyman. <laughs> but um, I, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that reinforces my decision not to run my own Kickstarter. And I'm happy to to be a, a core author or a or a friendly, smiling social media face. But 
the actual hard part should be done by someone who's good at doing hard parts. So, Kat, when Palgreen does its next Kickstarter, what are the things that you're going to uh, threaten to hit Simon with a stick over if he does or doesn't do them? Um, I think, again, I think, like Ken said, kind of over-promising or, or getting caught up in the excitement of Kickstarter and wanting to give people as much as you possibly can if, if people buy into it. So, so it's kind of managing the reward levels and making sure that that what you're offering is something that it's it's realistic to be able to deliver within an acceptable time period after the Kickstarter, rather than going, let's just give everyone gold-plated books, and then going, oh, actually, it's going to take us the best part of eight months to source gold-plated books. Oops. Uh, well, there's a lot of prospecting uh, involved in that. There is, there is, exactly, and dwarves. Uh, right. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of acceptable time constraints, I think we've come to the end of this segment, so uh, thank you, Kat, and thank you, Simon. Thank you. The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gear suggests we are once more in proximity to Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into time to change, fold, spindle, and or mutilate the time stream. And this time we have a request to Time Incorporated from our sponsor Tracy Barnett of Sand and Steam. And uh, he, uh, in a Viking frame of mind, I wonder why that could be, asked Ken to save the Viking settlement of Vinland. Uh, Ken, you saved Jamestown earlier. Uh, what are you going to do to keep Vinland going? Well, uh, saving Vinland, it, it, it's got to come down to demographics. I mean, the problem with Vinland is, uh, first of all, that they picked uh, a... <laughs> well, let, let's back up a step, I guess. And okay. uh, it, your research brief on Vinland tells you... Okay, Vinland is the Viking name for North America, and I think that that is pretty much universally believed now. There may be one or two holdouts who still believe that it's a generic term meaning anywhere wine grows or that it uh, doesn't refer to North America at all, that it's a poetic uh, kenning that, that uh, merely means a generic paradise across uh, the Atlantic. But I think pretty much everyone has now accepted that the Vinland sagas are, are you know, as reliable as any other sagas and therefore have some core of historical truth to them. It's something that's gone from elliptony to history in our, in our lifetimes. In, in our, in almost exactly. In our, not quite in our lifetimes, because I think they found Lanzo Meadow in like 1960, didn't they? But it certainly, uh, the, the, the sea change has happened while we've been paying attention to it. But the, the sagas, there's two of them, uh, the Greenland saga and the saga of Eric the Red, uh, both say that a bunch of Vikings from Greenland sailed west and found a fairly miserable, horrible uh, batch of countryside, which they named Helluland, which I guess lets you know what they, what they thought about it. And it was full <laughs> of ice and thick water, and they hated it, and they, they went back to Greenland. And then Sucky Town was already taken Sucky by Town somewhere was already in taken. And so they, uh, a different batch of Vikings then said, you know what, I'll bet there's something to the south of that. And this is usually Leif Erikson is the guy that is given the credit for this. And he sails out to Helluland and Markland, which is the land south of Helluland. And then farther south finds a land called Vinland. And one of the two sagas says that they keep going all the way south until they get to, depending on how you uh, parse it, uh, you may go all the way down to Vitramanaland, which is the land of the white men, or you might be going down to a land called, I think, Hod is what it's called, and it's the land where there is no winter. And that, of course, would imply that the Vikings had gotten maybe down to Florida or the Caribbean, which seems a little excessive. And 
you can certainly make arguments that Vikings always liked a good poetic ending to their saga, even if this uh, saga was just them discovering maybe Nova Scotia or maybe Massachusetts and settling there. And the fraught question of where they settled comes up because they named it Vinland, meaning the place where grapes grow and where you have vines. And uh, some people try and save it by saying, well, the Vikings also called mulberries grapes, but I think the notion that, you know, Leif Erikson doesn't know a grape when he sees it is a little unlikely, and we probably have to look for grapes. Now, in our time, grapes don't grow north of New York, and so having the Vikings sail all that way down south is, again, it begins to get a little problematic, but... Obviously, the Vikings are doing this sailing in the medieval warm period when you're growing barley in Greenland, so obviously grapes is going to grow farther north than they do now. So you have to maybe say maybe grapes are growing in wild in Nova Scotia. Maybe they're growing wild uh, up in um, uh, southern uh, Quebec uh, by the mouth of the St. Lawrence. It's, it's hard to say necessarily what the range of the grape would have been in 1000 AD because we have really no way of knowing that. It's, it's, uh, it depends on a lot of different questions. But I think we can all agree that the little uh, settlement that they found archaeologically at the very tippy tip of Newfoundland, Lonzo Meadow, is probably not Vinland because nothing has ever grown in the tippy tip of, of Newfoundland. So the Vikings go down to uh, whatever Vinland is. There are some number of boats uh, worth of settlers, uh, depending on which uh, specific one you, uh, you, 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 which saga you read, there's between 150 or there might be a little uh, a little fewer, like 80 people that are on these uh, boats trying to settle and build another colony, just the same way that Greenland was colonized from Iceland and Iceland was colonized from Norway. And of course, things go south with the natives, who are called Skraelings in the uh, sagas, and they also go south because they bring possibly one of the most exciting and interesting medieval women, um, a woman named Freitas, but she also has the great gift of causing every man in the settlement to decide to kill everyone uh, by starting family feuds and one assumes arguments over who gets to spend the winter with Freitas. And so that also caused a great deal of problems that the Puritans at least did not have to worry about. And so between those two things, the, the apparently the, the settlement at Vinland is not able to um, uh, survive and they either all are killed off by Viking, by the Skraelings, or they get in their boats and say, screw this for a bad job, and sail back to hospitable cattle ranch Greenland, where everything is beautiful and will never, ever get bad. So your first step, presumably, is to go to the point of departure and convince Freitas uh, to stay home. That's, that's I think, one of the key elements in that first winter, is uh, to, to get Freitas put on a different boat. Uh, there are either. feuds to prosecute here in, what was <laughs> yes. it, Norway or Denmark? Uh, or Greenland. Greenland. So I, I think, yeah, you go to Freitas and you drink with Freitas and you say, well, yeah, I, I think going to Vinland makes sense because, yeah, I wouldn't want to stick around after what uh, Helga Thorfinn's daughter said about you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you, yeah that's a good idea. You probably should leave. And then she, of course, would uh, say, I'm not going to listen to you and... Once I recovered from my axe blow, I could then accompany uh, Leif down to Vinland. And at some point, the key, I think, for getting the Vikings to keep coming back is to show them the Grand Banks, the enormous uh, cod fishery that is just off the south coast of Newfoundland and, I guess, sort of the north coast of New Brunswick. It's in that neck of the woods. Yeah. And so this is literally the single richest fishery in the universe. Uh, well, certainly in the, in the solar system. and um, 
if the Vikings can find that, it solves two problems. First, it solves Greenland's food problem. And second, it solves Vinland's food problem. Um, and the other thing that you have is, as you uh, are sailing around full of cod is you have access now to the forests of northern New England and uh, the, the maritime provinces, which let you build houses and boats, which neither of which you can build in Greenland anymore because they chopped down all the trees in Greenland when they first settled it and discovered, perhaps too late, that uh, they needed trees to keep being Vikings. And if you are have access to uh, the forests of northern North America... You can build quite the naval empire, as the British discovered, and certainly you can keep your colony going. Yeah, so if the Vikings have 150 people at Vinland, the Pilgrims only had 100 people at Plymouth, so obviously that is enough to have a self-sustaining colony, although the Vikings may have faced a different demographic uh, challenge than the Pilgrims, because we don't know whether or not the Vikings spread any diseases to the Native Americans in the same way that well, technically the Pilgrims didn't do it. The Pilgrims showed up after the Spanish had killed off everyone in North America with the smallpox. So the Vikings are going up against an Algonquin confederacy that is pretty much feeling its oats at this point. And if they're not all dying of diseases, it's going to be a lot harder to uh, to conquer a stretch of turf. I mean, it's not impossible. Obviously, they were able to conquer all of Ireland which is at least as hard as conquering um, uh, part of Massachusetts. Although uh, not as conveniently surrounded by coastline. <laughs> no, but uh, Massachusetts has got plenty of coastline, and if you're the only people who have uh, naval power, you can do a lot of damage with that. So other than an even bigger audience for a War of Metal and Bone, what is the uh, history further out from saving Vinland? Well, if, if you have Vinland as part of the Viking world, Right, and it's a self-sustaining colony. Uh, obviously, you're, you, well, Vinland is going to be different if it only gets as big as Iceland, which is to say about seventy thousand folks, which is to say about the size of uh, Puritan New England in sixteen seventy or so. Or if it, you know, suddenly blows up, and by the time the Spanish are sailing across the Atlantic, there are three and a half million Scandinavians living on the eastern seaboard, uh, in one or another degree of intermixture with uh, the Algonquins and the Wampanoags and the other uh, native tribes. So you have a lot of different questions depending on how much of Vinland survives. If only that little sort of miniature Iceland survives, and so you have sort of Iceland in Massachusetts and everything is, is copacetic there, or Iceland even in Maine or in um, uh, Nova Scotia, what that does is it makes the medieval experience going across the Atlantic faster and more certain. So you don't have to wait. Christopher Columbus doesn't isn't going to be the guy who discovers uh, America. There's going to be a bunch of people who sail across, not as many as you'd think, because it took a long time for even Scandinavians to get back to Iceland and Greenland, much less all the way to uh, Vinland. But eventually you're going to start seeing people like the Orkney Islanders sail over there. You're going to start seeing maybe, um, uh, obviously, the Basque uh, cod fishermen that probably found the Grand Banks before anyone found North America except the Vikings, um, would be sailing up there already, which would probably lead um, the maybe the Aragonese, who are great medieval navigators, or even you know the English, right, who are out there trying to figure out something to do uh, during the uh, Hundred Years' War. They're uh, getting interested in, in naval activity. So it's a possibility of that. Uh, Vinland, if it got plugged into even the Norwegian trade network, might have wound up with... A, a presence because it's again going to be a really good source of long 
spars for ships and ship masts, you're going to see a immediate trade with that within sort of the, the northern countries. And, and so you're going to wind up with a, almost certainly by then a Christian kingdom, uh, that is part of Christendom at that, you know, sort of super extents, expanse of, uh, of America. That's not going to have huge geopolitical effects, but I think it's going to have probably incalculable cultural effects. The notion that the new world isn't really the new world, that it's just sort of an extension of the old world. That's going to have just amazing mental effects. Even, you know, you might have short-circuited the Renaissance by doing that. Or conversely, you might have brought about a more organic Renaissance as this sort of notion that we can continue to expand the Aristotelian or biblical knowledge of the world, that there is no, there, there, there's no cutoff that happens. Now, if Vinland is isolated during what they call the disastrous 14th century, when, when Greenland cools off and, and everyone in Greenland dies, when Europe is consumed by the, um, uh, by the Hundred Years' War and then by, you know, a, a series of, of, of plagues and, and nightmares. Um, this, of course, is caused by the coming of the Little Ice Age, which makes it impossible pretty much to live in Greenland unless you're an Inuit and um, makes it pretty much impossible to live in Europe for a while. Uh, so if Vinland is isolated by that, then I think that causes a lot of interesting cultural effects on Vinland. And maybe the rediscovery or rebringing of Vinland into the fold of Christendom becomes a celebratory event to sort of counter the fall of uh, Jerusalem and the Crusades. I, I'm not sure. I think the biggest changes are cultural because they're not going to be geopolitical unless you get a, a, a multi-million person uh, Scandinavian uh, kingdom in America, which obviously has potentially incalculable effects. But I think a more realistic Vinland is still going to have incalculable cultural effects. So, North American listeners, if you'd go to a 7-Eleven tomorrow and find lutefisk and sheep's heads, you'll know that Ken uh, succeeded in his mission. Yes, uh, but uh, conversely, uh, the mead selection is way better. So, you know, you gig on swings, which you lose on the roundabouts. Uh, well, I think that's another uh, exciting excursion on Ken's time machine, and therefore another exciting episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Sand and Steam Productions. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Right on the palimpsests of our heart by clicking the donate button at com. Join such illustrious patrons as Chris McNeil, Daniel Dover, Paul Weimer, and Neil DeCarteret. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.